Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week we are doing both <laughs> both one of my favorite incidents in the Book of Revelations, but also probably one of the most famous, I suspect. Um, certainly one that has had an incredible amount of pop cultural cachet uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. It's the episode of The Woman Clothed with the Sun, pursued by the great red dragon um it's hard to even account for all of the pop culture references made of this including some i've made myself in marvel comics uh i create well i didn't create her um but i fleshed out the character of uh teddy altman's mother um uh, mary joe altman we gave her the name mary joe obviously mary and joseph uh, and Antalia is her Skrull name. She's a Skrull woman. And she is Antalia the Sun-Clothed, who runs across the galaxy with a child being pursued by the forces of the Super Skrull. <laughs> I was very calculated in my choice to give her the title The Sun-Clothed and to give her the name Antalia the Dawn, um, which is uh, a complicated network of images for the Virgin Mary. Um... But yeah, you don't need to go to me for pop culture references about this. You can look at, for example, Hannibal, uh, the the Red Dragon, right? The um, Francis Dollarhide, the Tooth Fairy, is obsessed with this image from Revelations. He believes he is the Great Red Dragon. He eats uh, an original print of William Blake's um, Great Red Dragon, which as a kid, I was like, oh my God, he ate it. And it's like, now that I know more about Blake, it's like, we have lots of those. It's it's fine. He can have one. Let him have the Great Red Dragon <laughs> as a little treat. Um, and that's not true. But <laughs> uh, anyway, this is the episode where I think this text really takes a sudden turn. Um, it is really possible, I think, to imagine a version of Revelations that's kind of done, <laughs> that, like, wrapped itself up after the trumpets, right? It really did, especially in this slow read with all of you, I feel like there's been a real seam opened in this text. Um, I do think, ultimately, these are by the same writer, these are by the same editor, that he has done a lot of work to make this into one text, one of which, to me, the real signpost for this is uh, the three angels that begin, middle, and end this this text. Um, but this does feel to me of a different texture, tenor, age, vintage, maybe, than the 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 prior visions. It feels like this is its own separate inspiration with a different and separate network of imagery, a quite exciting um, network of imagery. Many of the things that Revelations is famous for are yet to come and are coming thick and fast in the next few weeks. Um, so anyway, the story this week is that he has a portent a sign that he sees in heaven. The Greek word here is semion. That's where we get ideas of, like, semiotics. Um, he is telling us this is something to be interpreted. That is, it is not even at the level of its authorship meant to be interpreted literally, right? Anytime, anytime someone says, like, I take the Bible literally, it's like, well, right here in Revelations 12, he says you have to interpret this so mm, help me out here. Um, 
Anyway, he sees a woman clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Uh, so let's think about that. It's hard for me, actually, um, at like a primal <laughs> neurological level for me to untangle this image from um, the Virgin Mary. Uh, in the church that I grew up in, St. Francis de Sales Catholic Church in Ajax, which has since been condemned, not for policy, but because it was an old pioneer church and was about to fall down. Um, but there was a statue uh, that is burned into my brain, that is like literally comes from the pre-verbal part of my brain, of the Virgin Mary. She was on the left side of the altar, stage left, whatever. If you're facing the altar on the left, that's where she was. On the right was this, the... Um, the Oh my God, why am I blanking on the word? The box they keep Jesus in. Uh, <laughs> and on the left was the statue of Mary. And that statue of Mary was this image. It was Mary in white with a blue uh, shawl, um, a beautiful crown. I remember her crown on her head with the stars fixed in a, I guess, brass halo around her head. Um, and then at the bottom under her feet was the moon, a silver crescent moon, a cloud upon which she stood, and a serpent that she was crushing under her foot. All that is here. Um, the, the serpent we are about to meet in a moment, and we'll unpack all of that, but the image of her crushing it is straight from Genesis, the Proto-Evangelion, which is a, a passage we've talked about before, a passage that is quite clear in its initial meaning, but which Christians have since layered upon it. The first uh, prophecy, the first good news, the first gospel about Jesus coming, when um, God says to Eve that he will put enmity between herself and the serpent and its children and her children, and her children, um, the serpent's children will sting his heel, uh, and her children will crush its head. Obviously, that is just supposed to be like an origin story for why snakes are such assholes and why we step on them. Um, but for Christians, it's like, oh, actually God is talking about the devil, and the devil is going to pierce his foot like Jesus on the cross, but Jesus is going to trample him underfoot. So Mary gets to be, as the second Eve, gets to be the one that tramples Satan underfoot. Um, uh, the moon, the, the stars, and, uh, and the sun here. What's up with that? Uh, a lot of things. Um, I said I have to untangle this from Mary because Mary is not associated with this passage until, at least in writing that we have extant, the 6th century. Uh, it's a dude named... Ecumenios makes this connection in a commentary on the apocalypse. Uh, and it's easy to see why that connection gets made, right? This is the story of a woman who gives birth to this messianic child who defeats the devil. It's very hard not to think of Mary <laughs> in those moments. And I have um, repeatedly in doing this podcast talked about the way men get to be specific and women get to be concepts. Um, and it would be really nice and really cool 
if uh, this was supposed to be the author's depiction of Mary. Uh, as uh, one of the commenters noted on the Patreon, like there's something really wonderful and radical about if you take as written that John of Patmos is John the Beloved, and this is his like extreme heavy metal depiction of Mary, a person which he would have known, right? <laughs> um, that uh, Mark has his very flinty depiction of Mary and Luke has a much more nuanced human depiction of Mary and she gets to be this like metaphysical, like neon Genesis Evangelion version of herself here in John of Patmos's writing. That's fun to imagine and really lovely to think about. Uh, isn't it pretty to think so? Um, but I think that if we're honest with ourselves and again, like the barnacles... I have to scrape off my own soul in saying this are difficult. But I think if we are honest with ourselves, there's almost no chance that the author's intention here is that this is the historical mother of Jesus. Um, mostly because he, first of all, doesn't seem to indicate anything about her uh, historical existence here. Uh, also, it's just like a habit of mine. We have seen his intense and deeply unlikable misogyny as a writer, and we're going to get it even more in a minute. Um, well, not in a minute, but in a few weeks. Um, I mean, like, literally, this guy is literally ground zero for, like, Madonna and whore. Like, this text is fully, like, the virgin mother and uh, the uh, the whore of Babylon, or, like, his two archetypes. Uh, but that actually leads me to the third reason. It's, like, there isn't really, like the the virgin narrative here, right? Uh, it is interesting to see such a thoroughgoingly Jewish writer who obviously is not tapped into, for example, the Lucan um, synoptic narratives about the virgin birth and all that, right? Um, we're in a much more Johannine school, which is not actually that interested in Jesus's historical origins, except in as much as they are Jewish. Which leads us to the two other major categories that this woman could represent, which I would submit are actually, for the writer's purposes, the same category, which is that she is um, Israel, she is Judaism writ large, um, and she is the living church. Uh, and again, like he does not separate those. Uh, as we've been talking about throughout, he believes the true... Judaism is the Christian church Judaism that he is um, fighting for in this text and insisting upon in this text, a Christianity that is thoroughly and practicing in its Jewishness and also even ethnically Jewish, uh, even as it allows these sort of Gentile converts that it folds in in an incredibly Catholic, small-c Catholic way, um, so long as they are properly Jewish, right? Uh and and in that sense, it's actually very easy to decode the the semiotic chain here, right? Like there are twelve stars because she is encircled by the twelve tribes of Israel, right? And in fact, this network of images—the sun, the moon, and sky—the sun, moon, and stars—are um, straight out of Joseph's dream 
of Israel, right? I dreamed I saw um, 11 stars, the sun, the moon, and sky, bowing down before my star. It made me wonder why, right? Like, <laughs> go go listen to Jesus Christ, uh, not Jesus Christ Superstar. Listen to that too, but go listen to Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Joseph has the dream where he sees the sun, the moon, and stars bowing to his star. He and his brothers are the 12 stars of Israel, right? There's 12 tribes. Um, We've talked before about the asterisks there, about how Joseph gets to, like, be two tribes, etc. Um, but anyway, it's very clear in that sense, right, that this woman, as much as I hate to do this, right, because it is the thing that always happens, um, is that a woman gets not to be a person, but gets to be a concept. Um, but this becomes tricky because she's a concept who gives birth to a person. Uh, and it does seem like maybe this baby is Jesus, but maybe not. Um, first we have to deal with the dragon. Um, so she's giving birth uh, in the agony of giving birth. Again, and specifically, a doctrinal problem for later Christianity, right? Because Mary is without sin and therefore cannot suffer the consequences of sin and therefore, A, cannot die, which is why we get the assumption of Mary, right? She goes body and soul to heaven. But B, she specifically... And this gets all kinds of wonderful developments in medieval Christianity. She cannot experience any pain while she's giving birth. Um, because pain, in Genesis, the pain of childbirth is very specifically a consequence <laughs> of the fall. So you get like these wonderful medieval narratives where Jesus kind of just like, sorry, like slips out of her. Like she is just like a painless, an eerily painless childbirth. There's also some weird ones where like there's a hand, there's like um, a midwife who, uh, this is vulgar and I'm sorry, but it's, it's a real story you can look up and read for yourself. There's a midwife who puts her hand to assist in the childbirth inside Mary, and her hand is burnt off. Like she just scorched off to the root. Um... Like, like, as though there was, like, a divine furnace inside of Mary. Um, uh, we talked last week about how the, the line before this reading is that the Ark of the Covenant is opened, and that becomes one of the Catholic titles for Mary because she is the opening Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> it's cool. It's weird. It's gross in, like, some ways that, like, these, the medieval mind's obsession with, like, what if you did this? But uh, it's also really neat. Like, <laughs> anyway, you can go look that up. But uh, it's a problem that the canon, there's a canonical moment in the canon Christian Bible where it says Mary has agonies of childbirth, um, which means that, like, you actually do sometimes see a little two-step from theologians where they're like, ah, but she's actually a metaphor for Israel and, like, history. History's pangs of childbirth, right? Like, the, the future is struggling to be born. Now is the time of monsters is sort of, like, one of the great images that comes out of the imagination of this text, right? Next, we come to the great red dragon. Then another portent sign, Semyon, appeared in heaven, uh, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but it's worth pointing out, like, in heaven clearly means the, the sky, right? Um, there is a kind of way that, I mean, there is going to be a war in heaven here in a minute. I saw a lot of, 
<laughs> a lot of Catholic theologians be like, oh, the sky, not not heaven, heaven. Um, because obviously you can't actually make war in God's heaven. It's like a, an interesting and fun problem. Like the, the war in heaven is like an old, old theme here being iterated upon. Um, but when it says a, a sign in heaven, I do think... I don't know. Maybe maybe the dragon is supposed to be in heaven. I don't know, but I, I took it to mean the sky. Um, uh, great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Uh, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. Uh... <laughs> God, this is fun, isn't it? Um, okay, what's going on? Well, red uh, blood, obviously, right? Like it's uh, it's a spectacular image of slaughter. What's up with the heads and the the sevens and the tens? Uh, at this point, I basically keep the bookmark in the book of Daniel um, <laughs> uh, because it's so at the author's elbow, it should probably be at ours too. Um, a quick reminder, like Daniel is kind of a narrative, but then in chapter seven, it becomes fully just like pro a prophecy. Um, and there you get the four beasts uh, and you can go check it out, literally start reading at Daniel 7 and then read till Daniel 9 and you'll be like, oh, well, that prepares me for a lot of what's coming. Um, but in Daniel, there are four beasts and the beasts have like jaguar parts and like horns and stuff. Um, and your footnotes will probably do a pretty good job if you're in using a Bible that's worth anything of telling you about how these are the four empires who by the time of composition had kind of laid various claim and uh, visited various destructions upon uh, the Jewish people. Um, the last of which is obviously the Greek empire, um, which is what all this weird stuff with the 10 and the seven is. It's a reference to the, the Greek rulers and Tiaphas um, Epiphanes specifically, again, like this is the Hanukkah stuff, this is the Maccabees stuff. The Greeks conquered, they desecrated the temple, they um, did so for three and a half years, right? Time and times and half a time. Um, all of that is there. And what our author has done is synthesized these four monsters into one, which is this dragon. Um, and the dragon is less clearly so right now, but will increasingly be clear that it is Rome. Um, it is the Roman Empire itself as a kind of um, spiritual, malefic entity. Um, now, that will need some unpacking, but not until next week when he kind of gets like a servant who is like the political will on earth, the beast. Um, you've heard all of this before, even if you've been at any kind of pop cultural knowledge, like there's a kind of like antichrist beast servant who makes everybody worship the dragon. We don't really need to decode what the dragon is because the text is going to be very explicit about who he is. Just a little further down... Um, it says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That is uh, as clear as it gets, right? But it also, and this is kind of invisibilized by the history since, 
it is doing the work of synthesizing all of those separate or overlapping entities into one. Um, and that the devil is Satan, uh, which are not always the same. Um, they were, they certainly have a different texture to them, even in our own imagination, right? If I say the devil, it invo invokes certain things for you, whereas if I say Satan, it invokes certain other things, right? The devil has much more of a like, um, personal tempter, you know, horns and a tail. Satan has the more magnificent um, arch enemy of God quality to it. The deceiver of the whole world and that ancient serpent. We're getting here a very early synthesis of the idea that Satan is the serpent in the garden, the old serpent who seduces Adam and Eve. Um, and again, why that statue I was talking about makes uh, Mary into the figure trampling on him. Um, but there are other serpents worth thinking about. In fact, there is a version of this myth throughout Mediterranean <laughs> culture and beyond. Um, you get a version of this with Isis and Astarte. Uh, there's the whole thing, the mother of, like, Isis is the mother of Horus, and then Set or Typhon is uh, trying to eat the baby, right? That's where we get Typhoon, right? The great cosmic monster. Um, Marduk and Tiamat has a version of this. Um, the biggest and to me most familiar is Leto, pregnant with Apollo um, and Artemis, they're twins. Uh, <laughs> in case you need to be reminded how twins work. <laughs> but Apollo really gets to be the star of this story. Um, Leto becomes pregnant by Zeus. And uh, in some versions, it's Hera sending the serpent, or in some versions, it's its own separate thing that the serpent knows that Apollo will someday supplant him. Um, the, a serpent tries to devour the children, or specifically Apollo. Uh, the serpent is Python, um, uh, who is, in most versions of this story, kind of like the great chaos monster. Um, but the temple of Python, from which we get like Pythia, um, is the oracular temple. It's the, the navel of the universe. Sorry, Dax was playing with his ball toy. Um, <laughs> Python, uh, Apollo's great nemesis, Apollo obviously like a sun god, um, is this, again, chaos serpent. Um, who sits on the navel of the world, uh, is kind of the child of Gaia, the previous generation of, like, uh, titanic gods who the Olympians have supplanted. Um, and he kills him and takes over his job, right? Like, Apollo then becomes the god of prophecy. Very often, you'll see, in depictions of Apollo, you'll see the serpent. Uh, and it kind of ties into his um, plague powers his like poisoning powers but it's it's the python of prophecy um snakes have a weird like like tiresias as snake imagery too also another prophet um and th that's his job that's why the oracle at uh delphi is the pythia right um or is it delos it might be delos anyway um so there's a version of this is what I'm saying in a lot of Mediterranean myths. And what we're seeing is John synthesizing this into a Christianized myth in a quite audacious way, in a way that I recognize in some small ways in my own work, right? Like um, he's remixing and making this kind of bold uh, claim upon this kind of shared literary text. Um, the 
the Belvedere Apollo actually has this. Uh, you, if you look, although he's so beautiful, whoever notices. But if you look, <laughs> the post against which the Belvedere Apollo is leaning has kind of a deflated serpent shape in it. Um, anyway, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Um, this is where the idea that Satan seduces a third of the angels comes from, directly from this image. Uh, and it kind of sounds like partly that is part of his point, right? Because as I mentioned, um, they, it says later when it's talking about him being the ancient serpent, he was thrown down to the earth and the angels were thrown down with him. Um, so it might be that the stars are supposed to be the angels here. That's a very common uh, conflation of images. Um, but also it's worth noting like that image of a third of the, a third of destruction is very common in the previous section we read together, right? Um, so it's easy to see a kind of way that this text is maybe starting to loop back in time on itself. Um, he's going to eat the kid. He's po posed, poised to eat the kid to devour the child as soon as it was born. Um, it's not really clear why that doesn't happen, <laughs> but she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, that image is straight from the book of Psalms. Um, it is actually not remarkable as an image of kingship. Um, Milton loves it. He likes, he loves to talk about trading the rod of iron for the rod of gold, like the ceremonial ruling for an actual like weapon, like an actual like billy club you can use. And that is the image. It is a violent image. That is what scepters are. They are violent, um, billy clubs, right? It's a way for you to assert your authority via force. That is always what a scepter is a reminder of, um, uh, all the nations with a rod of iron. Like, it's very obvious this is a messianic image, right? There will become a child. If you read the passage, the psalm, this is directly referencing. Um, it is itself quite messianic. You'll notice it is a conquering image, very uh, expected in this text, right? He's not just going to rule his nation, but all nations. This is, again, like, all will be cowed. Um, uh, but the child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for, take a wild guess how long she's going to be in the wilderness. 1,260 days. Uh, time and times and half a time. Three and a half years. Uh, the same time limit. Again, it's like, you could, and some commenters do, suggest this event is in direct parallel, is happening at the same time as, for example, the prophets we saw last week, right, who have the same durational amount of time. But as we talked about, it's exactly half of seven, so there is a kind of way it has its own numerological significances. Um, it's half a completion. It's a time that's long, but not that long. Um, it is also, again, specifically the amount of time the, the Gentiles trampled uh, Israel, right? Now, I said this was a messianic figure, and I said, like, it's Jesus. Um, but that's a little complicated here. Because if it is Jesus, well, well then what the heck is it describing exactly? Um, when it says he, the child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, right? Like, it, it's, it's odd 
That is an odd way to think about the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? Like, you don't really think of Jesus as being still a baby. Uh, and it feels like an odd way to collapse that specific amount of time um, in that he is snatched to heaven. Uh, and it is possible, right? Like, that this, this will be the image that he uses later, right? Of like, well, Jesus does come again. There is a second coming. But there is a kind of way that, like, maybe the child is also not a specific Messiah, but, like, kingship itself, right? Um, just possible, right? That, like, what this might be saying is that Israel had a king, and that king dominated, but then the kingship has ended. There's a kind of, like, Arthur and Avalon kind of thing happening here. The once and future king kind of image is happening here that maybe feels slightly distanced from like baby Jesus imagery, right? And it is funny that like this passage really is the source for almost all like baby Jesus enthroned images that you see. Um, there is there tend does there is like the Leonardo da Vinci like Renaissance backlash where it becomes very much like no let's think about Mary as just a person let's think about them living in humble means but if you see like a Mary enthroned with a baby Jesus look at how often you notice like the moon under her feet the serpent under her feet the stars around like there's the Bougereau image that my grandmother had hanging in her bedroom that I think about a lot of this um, where she's quite human but the image is just like pure apocalypse. Um, and then war breaks out in heaven. <laughs> Michael, surprise, Michael, and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. In some ways, a passage that has been so digested by culture and popular culture, I almost don't need to unpack it. Um, this is the source for all those images. This is the source for all the war in heaven stuff. This is almost basically all the action of Paradise Lost is collapsed into that little bit I just read. Um, and that makes it hard sometimes to notice how weird it is. One of the things that's weird about it is like when temporally is this happening? Because it kind of sounds like this is happening after Jesus's life, right? Like it sounds like if that baby is Jesus, um, then this is after he goes to heaven. Now you and I are used to a kind of like, especially after working on Paradise Lost, a kind of like loosey-goosiness of time and cause and effect, uh, and heaven's time is not our time. But this is a text that has been pretty thorough about it's like, and then, and thens. And then there was war in heaven? Like, there's a fun way, uh, and some of the Patreon commenters talk about this in a way that is really, really cool. If you want to check that out, you should definitely subscribe. Um, but, like, there is a fun way that one of the ways this has harmonized, possibly, has harmonized the old rabbinic and somewhat current now idea of satan in jewish thinking versus like the apocalyptic christian one that is almost zoastrian in its like manichaean idea of like evil versus good um is just possible to imagine that satan falls somewhere proximate to the life of christ in time that is to say that 
it's possible for some of human history, he was a faithful angel and then fell during human history. Um, perhaps even very close to Jesus's time. In fact, maybe even in that moment where he says, I saw Lucifer fall like lightning. Like, what if he fell during the ministry of Christ? That's fun to think about. That, Like, <laughs> um, like that's a, a, a kind of innovative thought that like, when he's tempting Jesus in the desert, he's kind of performing his last function as an angel before, like, while Jesus is talking on earth, there's a war in heaven. Is like, fun to think about, at least for me. Um, Michael is, like, a weird polyp in this text. Uh, he is It is extremely common in Jewish apocalypses to depict Michael as, like, the warlike angel who defeats Satan, who defeats this malefic angel and the watchers for example in the book of enoch go check out the book of enoch especially second enoch if you haven't you can read about the war in heaven and that too actually depicts the fall as an event that occurs in human history specifically um a response to the several of the angels who become the fallen angels having sex with human women creating the nephilim the giants um and the fall of the angels in that book, in the Book of the Watchers, is specifically caused by um, their lust for humans, uh, which means that obviously they have to, humans have to exist, right? It's not like a pre-creation. It's not like Milton's Paradise Lost, where Earth is actually meant to replace the lost angels. Um, one other thing worth noting here, Milton knows about this, this kind of strange, like, contradiction, paradox, um, oddness in the text. And he actually makes it very clear, for those of you, the real heads who read Paradise Regained with us, um, that, that Jesus's uh, ministry does mark the end of Satan's freedom on earth, that they are the gods of the upper air in, um, in Mil the Miltonic cosmos that when they fall, they kind of become the populace of Earth. They escape from hell and pollute our reality and take on its dimensions, right? This was the fun thing in Paradise Lost where, like, some of them become, like, spirits of fire and some of them, like, become the, the gods of regions and become Zeus and the Egyptian pantheon and all of that. Um, in Paradise Regained and in a lot, actually, of Milton's art, um... For example, there's um, On the Morning of Christ's Nativity, a poem I'm obsessed with, where Jesus is born. I actually have a version of it in Dayspring, where Jesus' birth causes like this mass evacuation of the demons from Earth, where they have been living in pleasure. Um, and Milton is even kind of sad about it uh, when it's happening. Then we get what is clearly a song. Um, most editions will mark this as a song. They will mark it as verse. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, right? Or Christ, right? Like this is a clear indication that this child was that Messiah. Um, for the accuser of our comrades, which must mean that or brothers which must mean that these this is an angel speaking right um and is saying that satan has been their great accuser <laughs> amazing <laughs> has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our god um maybe maybe the comrades maybe the brothers are humanity too i don't know um 
it's very unclear. And I think one of the reasons unclear is that I think this text is kind of an existing piece of poetry that is being folded in uh, to the narrative here. And one of the big clues about that is actually the next verse. Um, but they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. This is clearly like a martyrdom narrative here. But like, when did the blood of the lamb do anything in the narrative, right? Like, that was it was clearly Michael who threw them down. Like, the blood did not have any operant uh, moment in that narrative, strictly speaking, right? Like, you couldn't say, like, well, that's how he defeats him, and, like, that's the whole thing Paradise Lost does, but, like, that's not in the text. Um, uh, did not clink life even in the face of death. Rejoice, then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, for he knows that his time is short. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> That's so good. Like, what's kind of amazing this week is just, like, the sheer imaginative um, high fantasy power of this week's reading has basically fueled 2,000 years of imagery and fanfic. And, like, obviously I've been saying a lot as we've been going through this text about how, like, it probably would have been good for Christianity's philosophy had this text been quietly excised from the canon. But what an impoverishment of imagery. <laughs> what, what worse poetry we would have had it not been for this image of this grand angel who falls in this um, magnificent war and becomes this arch fiend, this great monster at the bottom of the pit who is enraged at us and both wants revenge and knows he's on a timetable. That's really fantastic. Um, so when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle um, <laughs> so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for guess how long, a time and times and half a time. Um, there's great, there's actually, the woman is often depicted with wings. Mary is not usually given wings because that's confusing. But if you see depictions of the woman, she very often does have wings. Um, in Blake's version, she has wings. In some of the versions I was posting to Twitter this week, she has wings. Um, it's worth noting the wilderness image, right? Like, what is that? Is that Masada? Are we meant to think of like, the war with Rome. Um, it is notable that, for example, in Matthew, um, Jesus has the flight into the wilderness. They do run into Egypt, right, to avoid Herod's purge. Um, so uh, this image is, like, common, both in interpolated into Jesus' history or perhaps a fact of Jesus' history. I don't know. Uh, I was not there. <laughs> Uh, it feels like someone might have mentioned that Herod killed a bunch of babies, but as we are learning in current history, and this is a dark thing to say, but it's true, uh, it depends who's writing the history books about whether or not the deaths of children make it into the books. Um, so anyway, flight into Egypt, time and times and half a time, then from his mouth, the serpent poured water. He is a water god, right? Like, as with all chaos monsters, as with Leviathan, who I should have mentioned before now, Leviathan is actually... Um, the word for Leviathan is the one that is being used for dragon here. Um, he's, a, he's a water god, right? He is the, the great titanic. He's Moby Dick, right? Uh, from his mouth, the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. 
But the earth came to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Like a, a fun little pop of his name here <laughs> at the end, right? Like the semion kind of dissolves itself and we get this specific narrative that is this is about Jesus. Um, and it's uh, only going to get more fun uh, next week uh, when <laughs> our monsters multiply. Uh, this was so much fun. Um, I am going to now turn to the Patreon comments uh, and engage with those. They were really great <laughs> this week. So if you want to hear those, subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Uh If you haven't ordered my book, Dayspring, please do that. It is coming out Easter 2024. Um, it, as of today, is on the Toronto Star's most anticipated books of 2024. We're on GQ's uh, most anticipated books of 2024. So you should get on that. Obviously, it means a great deal to pre-order a book uh, in terms of sales, in terms of bestseller lists. Um, so if you're going to get the book, no matter what, I would love it if you pre-ordered it from your local library. Not library. Well, library's fine too. But bookstore, um, uh, support local if you can. Um, I know people are asking about uh, Beyond North America. I sure am willing to sell those rights. My agent is working hard to place them. Um, okay, I'm going to go do that. Uh, so check that out and join us next week for um, The Beast. Who is like the beast and who's able to make war with him? Uh, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.